Genesis chapter 3 in our study through uh, the Pentateuch and beginning in Genesis. This is our this is our final sermon from inside the garden. And all of the things that we just were singing together, uh, this text makes sense of those things. These or, this origin story makes sense of Christ's death. It makes sense of, wa- of the world in which we live. It makes sense of um, many of these things, our redemption and why Christ died, the, the, the nature of, of fallen humanity. All of these things made sense of in these first even three chapters of God's word. We're going to go ahead and read one more time the entirety of chapter three. That's the whole story here, this whole narrative. So the final verse of chapter two reads, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking, the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorn and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of, herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Father, we entreat your help this morning. Um, I'm aware of my frailty today and ask for your strength and for your help. I pray for each of those that are listening, Father, here and online as well. Lord, I pray that you would rid our hearts of distractions. There are many things that could quite easily consume our thoughts, distract us from your text. And I pray that you would draw each ear time and time again back to the clarity of your word, that it would be explained uh, accurately, effectively, and that you would help us this morning to walk away understanding the world in which we live, the nature um, of redemption, the importance of your mercy, that we would rest in your character today as we walk through this difficult life. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. All right, this is our third sermon on chapter 3. And if you remember back to last week, this whole thing is functioning in, as a narrative. And there's some significant structure to it. So just briefly, we're going to review that because this really is part two of, uh, of the sermon from last week. And so we began in chapter 2, verse 25, with the nakedness of man and woman. And they're very... Uh, not aware of that at this point, but they're unashamed, right? And then the, the narrative begins to close at the end with the fact that God clothes them. So God makes man naked and then he clothes them. And as we move toward the center of the narrative, then we have uh, verses uh, 1 through 8 or 1 through 7 of chapter 3. And that's Eve's temptation, her deception, this time in which she, uh, I mean, we were made aware of the dangers even of deception in our own lives, particularly the ease with which Eve is drawn away from the true character of God. And foundationally, the misunderstanding or the deception is that she no longer believes in the goodness of God. And she believes that uh, his prohibitions are strict and his provisions are meager. And that was the mistake that she has made and the mistake that each of us make every time that we sin. We believe God no longer to be generous and good and kind to us, but he is strict and we ought to do things our own way. So we have that temptation, uh, the Satan's uh, deception, his speech, his uh, movements to, to draw Eve away, which is then paralleled on the other side of the story, which is where we're the, sec- the, the first half really of the sermon this morning is the the oracles against Eve and against Adam. And then right in the center, you have the sin and, and this fact that, that Adam and Eve know their eyes are opened and they see who they are and they cover, they run to, to put these leaves on and they hide from the presence of God. So the first sermon then was from the garden to sin. The second sermon last week was from sin to this curse of Satan or the serpent and then this week, we really pick up the second half, or it's in thirds, so the second third of the oracles, the oracles against Eve, the oracle against Adam, and then we have this epilogue of judgment uh, and mercy, verses 22 through 24. 
And so that's really where we're, where we're finishing up this morning is the, this final sermon uh, as Adam and Eve are moved from the garden, inside the garden, to outside of it. So one thing that's significant in this text, it was mentioned last week, is that um, when this story began in chapter 1, we looked at the poetry there, and, and in chapter 1 we saw three different moments in which God expressed very clear blessing to Adam and Eve. Not just to them, but if you look back in chapter 1, verse 22, we have God blessing the birds and the fish, and he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth, right? So we have this blessing to the animals. And then down in verse 28, we have God blessing humanity. God blessed them, man and woman. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, these other blessed things, and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And this third and final blessing in chapter 2, verse 3, then God blessed the seventh day. And he sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So chapter one was really this creation poem had the motif of blessing, didn't it? Time and time again, we see God blessing and then he states everything is very good. And we enter in then to to recount the story of the garden, right? The Toledot, the history of the heavens and the earth. And that begins in the garden. Now, in chapter 3, once this serpent enters the narrative, you have some darkness, some mystery. We know things aren't going to go well. And then as soon as God responds to the serpent, we've moved from blessing to cursing. And if you think, in chapter 1, three times, blessed are the animals, blessed are man, blessed is the seventh day. So we might expect three curses And there are three. And look, we have three people who are all guilty sitting right in front of us, right? We have the serpent, and we have Eve, and we have Adam. And so you might expect it to move that order, particularly as we looked at last week when he begins in chapter 3, verse 14, to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any of the cattle. So this morning, we really begin with the move from God speaking to the serpent to now addressing Eve and Adam. And we would anticipate the first words of God to Eve to be, because you have done this, cursed are you. And then moving to Adam, because you have done this, cursed are you. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't level cursings specifically against Eve or against Adam. He reserved that for the serpent. We'll see a little bit of this uncovered later this morning in in the oracle against Adam. And then next week, it kind of comes full circle because we do have three cursings in this Toledot, in this history of the heavens and earth. But it's not serpent Eve Adam. It's serpent ground Cain. That's the movement instead. And so in this cha- there's a significant change in the tone of God's voice when he moves from the serpent to Eve. Undoubtedly, he's going to deliver to them some difficult consequences, but he does so with words of concern, with words of provision. In the middle of their penalties, God clearly and repetitively implies hope for them. So let's look at this oracle against Eve. It is the shortest of them. And it lacks a direct charge leveled against her. 
Okay, so he begins with the serpent because you've done this. And then on the other side of Eve, when God speaks to Adam in verse 17, he says, because you have done this. So there's two accusations leveled against serpent and Adam. And we're going to see actually an ironic parallel between Adam's oracle and Satan's curse. Those two have many things in common. But in the middle here, a short, not exactly sweet, but a short oracle against Eve. Lacks a direct charge. Satan's charged with deception and Adam is charged with disobedience, abandoning his responsibility to obey. That's probably due to Eve's responsibility as helper, right? Uh, the ultimate responsibility did fall upon Adam. And, uh, and then it was probably also the nature of her sin. This was the product of deception rather than as both Satan and Adam are guilty of intention. So there are two things that are mentioned here, two parts of this oracle against Eve. Both are painful and both directly apply to her nature, who she is, who she was created to be. He begins with pain as a mother. He says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So a pair of parallel lines describing the pain that, that Eve is going to experience in childbearing. And I think this, this conception and bringing forth children describes obviously the process of having a child from conception to delivery. But I think that picture is intended then to function as a synecdoche or, or a piece representing the whole of just raising children, of being a mother, of motherhood. Motherhood is painful in a way that it was not before the fall. So of all the words uh, that are spoken today against Eve and then against Adam, I think this one's probably the easiest to understand. The easiest is just like, there's, a, there's quite an easy picture. It makes sense that, yes, that's painful. Yes, that's difficult. And maybe some of the other ones are, are a little bit more difficult here. But I mean, as stunning and as fulfilling as motherhood is, it also contains great sorrow, great pain, great frustration, great exhaustion here. So all of the daughters of Eve... In the sting of sin, sometimes when they long for a family, don't have one. And other times they experience the sting of sin and the pain of growing a family as well. From the frustration of maybe not being able to find a covenant companion. To the disappointment of infertility, not being able to bring forth children. The loss of life and the loss of time. Loss of opportunity in miscarriage. The mystery and the vulnerability and the sickness and the exacting a physical tax from each pregnancy. That's difficult. The fear and uncertainty and the pain in the actual labor and delivery of a child. The exposing realization of your inability to adequately protect your children. The unsettling questions about you know, whether you are measuring up whether you're doing enough, whether you're saying things right, whether you're teaching them well, all the way from the drain of energy from a screaming infant to a curious adolescent to an autonomous teen, right? All of it has its own difficulty. The wonder and the terror of this sort of cycle and mothering of, of nearness and separation as they grow and you want them to grow and you want them to be, go and be distant and you also dearly want them to be close to you and this just this tension Deep-seated ache of wondering if they will walk in faith. All of it. It's all difficult. It's all frustrating. 
All of this and much more, right? In sin, there's a painful mystery that accompanies the joyful clarity of mothering. You might say, as Solomon did, that mothering under the sun is filled with frustrating realities. And yet, in the middle of that inherited pain, right, is the hope of life. You to be a mother, that means children, that means they're not going to die. Once again, these notes of, of mercy flowing throughout the text. And so the, the pain in motherhood simultaneously signals hope, doesn't it? So uh, hope and, and the lack of loss, that they actually have something. There will be generation after generation. So she gives life, but it's also broken by sin. So she experiences pain as a mother. And then secondly, there's also this Pain as a wife. The second part of God's oracle to Eve affects this aspect of her responsibility. I think this element is probably much more difficult to to interpret with clarity than the first one is. Uh, This is one of those scenarios that we we could say, you know, many people have argued for many centuries and so much has been written. What exactly does this mean when God says your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you? We have two very key words, right? What does the desire mean? What is that? And then what does the ruling mean? Those two things, if we were able to clearly define those, then we have some clarity about the picture. So desire and ruling. Interestingly, and part of what makes this complex, is that this word for desire is only used two other times in the Old Testament. And uh, it's, it's a bit ironic how differently they're used. So if you wanted to turn for a moment to the Song of Songs, This is one of the places that it's used, or the Song of Solomon, about in the middle of your Bible, right after Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, chapter 7. Let's just get the sort of flow of how desire is used here. Starts in chapter 7, let's look down at the end of verse 9. So the wine goes down smoothly. For my beloved, moving gently the lips of sleepers. I am my beloved's, and his desire, there's the usage, is toward me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine has budded, whether the grape blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give off a fragrance, and at our gates are pleasant fruits, all manner, new and old, which I have laid up for you, my beloved. Okay, there's the first use. Desire's relatively clear there. It's quite a a sensual desire. Uh, His desire being for his covenant companion is intimate, it's exclusive, it's exciting, and they're rising early, you know, to go to the garden and to enjoy one another, and that's the picture. Okay. So, amusingly, in contrast, look at Genesis 4, starting in verse 5. Let's look at the, last, the end of verse 5. And Cain, he was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. So there's our desire and rule. Same words used in a very similar context. Or I mean, a very close context, at least. Okay, so, well, that, that's a bit of a different picture, isn't it? Now, now this desire is 
related to sin. And it's like this picture of a predator that's crouched and just ready to spring when someone walks through the door. It wants to overpower. It wants to dominate you. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So I'll kind of spare you the (laughs) innumerable interpretations, and let's just have a brief discussion about this uh, instead. A few things to remember. I think we should take this as a general rather than a specific uh, oracle. Similarly to the motherhood, it's not just saying in the moments of conception or uh, delivery that you will experience great pain there, right? It's not a specific thing. I think it's referring to all of life, your life as a mother, right? And now it's like your life as a wife. I think we're talking about something very specific. So when an interpretation or something very broad, so when an interpretation gets highly specific, like it's talking about this exact desire and then this is exactly how the husband thwarts it or something like that, I think we probably would be a little bit leery of something like that. Um, This also is not a divinely ordered thing, like the good sort of leadership that was described in chapters 1 and 2. This isn't the initiation of responsibilities between man and woman. So many have argued their interpretation might be that that Adam and Eve didn't have a leader-follower relationship prior to this moment. But in this moment, it's established, right? He will rule over you. Um, So that makes then leadership more like this post-fall power grab, which isn't which isn't a good thing. That's not been uh, how we, what's been talked about in the first couple chapters, right? We had God uh, giving Adam the responsibility of naming Eve, and there was some leadership there. Her being sourced in him, coming from his rib, uh, then her role as a Zer, as his helper, all of those things before this argued um, for a leadership follower role. Lastly, this also is not an excuse for abusive masculinity. This isn't God saying, this is how it should be. Just like he's not saying you should have as painful delivering and mother experiences as you can. It's not, it's not a command that, that men do this. It's a description of the fallen world. It's a description of why this happens. It helps us to be like, that's where it started. That's where this came from. It's not a decree, right, that men should act a certain way. So contextually... Genesis 4 makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? That we would just, oh, we have, we have uh, desire and rule, and then in the next chapter, desire and rule, and then there's only one other time in Scripture that desire is used. That makes sense that we'd view it that way. But when we do, then Eve is parallel with sin, right? And then Adam is parallel with Cain, and he's supposed to rule. So that gets a little bit weird, doesn't it? But then if you just say, okay, well, no, we're just going to jump to the song, which makes sense as well. Like that, that thematically makes more sense. That it's the marriage context. That it's the relationship that one has for the other. But in that case, it would be a good thing, wouldn't it? For he, Eve to have the desire and for man to reciprocate it. So it's all a bit complex. So through all of the difficulty of it and the opportunity, you know, all of the different interpretations we could kind of run down. I think we can say this with certainty and this I think, is what he's getting at. In the fallen world, in this post-sin environment, there is some sort of strong desire that women have in direct relationship to their husband. We know that, right? Whatever it is, whether it's for him, as the song would argue, or perhaps against him, as Genesis 4 might argue, there is a strong desire that's present. 
And they often find those desires leading them toward pain in the relationship because of their husband's sin. Because this leadership, as he's talking about here, this ruling is not the gentle, kind sort of leadership that he's intended. This is a broken sort of leadership. This is a power grab. This is authoritarian. It is unkind. And so, I think it's true then that, that wives often have lived under exploitive circumstances, right? They've sought to meet even unreasonable demands. They've also sought autonomy and independence only to receive the overwhelming response of dominance and tyranny. And in the middle of it all, the wife maintains this strong compulsion, urge, desire, whatever it may be, toward her husband. And that is difficult. So, in both of these elements... Her responsibility as a mother, her responsibility as a wife, those are both severely affected by sin. And she's constantly reminded of the presence of sin in her life. Moving to Adam, we have the opposite sort of experience. He does have an accusation leveled against him. And this is now the longest oracle, even longer than the one leveled against, or the the curse leveled against the serpent. As Adam bore the weight of responsibility in the situation, the text explicitly states that Adam's fundamental mistake in verse 17 was listening to the voice of his wife. Now that sounds a little bit off initially, rather than the voice of God. And that's not to say that he shouldn't, you know, that well, the problem is you're just listening to your wife. Well, that's not exactly what he's saying. But when the wife's voice in chapter two contradicted the command of God, the clear description of what Adam should be doing, then he should have ignored her voice. He should have elevated the voice of God above the voice of his wife, right? Just as a wife should elevate the voice of God above the voice of her husband. And so what he should have done is in these moments where she is not urging him toward obedience as a godly helper, but doing the opposite, then her words should have been rejected. I think Job would be a good example of this, where he did the opposite of what Adam did. He's in the middle of all this trial, all this trauma in his life. His wife comes to him and says, what are you doing? Curse God and die. And he says, no, should I receive good at the hand of God and not evil? You know, he rejects the voice of the poor counsel of his wife. Or even, you might say it's obviously not a marriage relationship, but Jesus to Peter. When Peter says some stupid things, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Not that you should say that to your wife, but you know, that idea of like, he's, he's rejecting. He's rejecting very clearly uh, poor counsel. Okay, so there's two parts to this oracle as well. The first part identifies the place where Adam's going to experience pain. He's going to experience pain as it relates uh, to his productivity as it relates to his provision, his protection, that job that he had been given to do, his leadership. So um, looking with me in verse 17, the second half, he says, cursed is the ground. There we go. That's interesting. Because of you, (laughs) you're not cursed. The ground is. That'll become more interesting in a moment. In toil, you shall eat of it. That toil is the same precise word as Eve received in pain you shall bring four children. So it's in pain, 
you are all uh, in pain, you will eat of it, eat from the ground, all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat, or yeah, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Okay, so there's, uh, it relates to all of this tilling, all of this gardening, all of this productivity and provision. That's what he was supposed to do. So work obviously is not, is not the punishment here. Not even necessarily hard work is the punishment, but the frustration and the pain of work, those are brought to light here. Think sweat, think overheating, think overexerting, think all of this anger when something won't work the way that it's supposed to work. It's not flourishing. It's not working with you. It's working against you. Because previously, God has already committed the garden to Adam's care. It was part of the abundant provision that God had given to him, a very good place that worked with Adam. It was going to flourish as he tilled it, as he tended and cultivated it. And now, the ground itself is cursed to work directly against him. Not to say that hard work didn't exist before the fall, but frustrating, endless work certainly did not. Now the ground is wild and stubborn, producing thorns and thistles. Sin spoils the soil, and now the soil suffers along with the man who is formed from it. So it's this reliefless, pain-filled toil in his responsibility to lead, provide, produce, and till. Some really beautiful moments of, of hope about this curse of the ground being undone in Romans chapter 8. Um, we won't get to those right now. But it is important to note here that within the curse and the oracles, nothing within the roles, responsibilities, values, etc. of the individuals of Adam and Eve has changed. They have the same jobs, they're the same people, but it just got more frustrating. That's what, that's what happened. So there was not a creation of the leader follower. There's not a creation of, um, of, of work or anything like that. But what's changing is the humiliation that is now essentially associated to their core responsibilities. Eve is still a childbearer. She's still a helper, but her childbearing is now extremely painful and her helping is humbling. Adam is still provider, but his providing is now extremely painful. And his work ends with a humbling return to the ground that he's been tilling, which leads us to the second part of the oracle, verse 19. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. You will do this. Until you die. Your lifelong painful struggle will eventually end in death rather than flourishing. Ecclesiastes speaks to the difficulty of this reality. All of this lifelong effort just to kick the bucket and pass the baton to another guy. Sounds hopeless, right? And in just a chapter uh, or two, Lamech, he understands the frustration when he names Noah, his son, in chapter 5, verse 29. He says, uh, so Lamech lived 182 years and he had a son. Or, yeah, and he called his name Noah saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord had cursed. So that he understood the sort of life that he was living. 
hoping that Noah would be able to break the cycle, which he was not able to, though there's some irony when after the ark, he then plants a, a vineyard, right, and gets some fruit of the vine, abuses it, but he's doing something. Um, so we've gone back here to creation language. This takes us back to, to when Adam was made, doesn't it? Adam, or Adam, was taken from the Adama, the ground. And then the Isha was taken, the woman was taken from the Ish, so they're all related. So there's this chilling moment here in this poem that you can see uh, where man is going to return to the dirt from which he came and woman then will accompany him because she's from him, right? So Adam's physical constitution, his groundness, his dirtness is going to crumble eventually as he returns to seemingly meaningless particles of dry dirt, so there's the death that we've kind of been waiting for in this moment. He's going to return to the dirt. And if you notice then all of these parallels between, between Adam and the serpent, um, there is a curse in them, though Adam's gets, he escapes by the ground and the serpent doesn't. The serpent gets cursed personally. Um, they both have accusations leveled against them because you have done this. And then they both have the phrase, all the days of your life, which foreshadows the fact that they will die. They both relate to the dirt. The serpent's going to be on it, and Adam's going to be in it. And then they both contain death edicts, where the serpent's head is going to be crushed, and Adam is going to return to the dust. Okay, so there's, there's this cycle that's happening here. The serpent is subject to the woman and his curse. The woman is subject to the man in the oracle leveled against her. Then the man is going to be subjected to the dirt in his because he's going to die. But if you go back to the first one, then what's subject to the serpent? Well, dirt is. He's actually on top of the dirt, isn't he? And so there's this like massive, just frustrating cycle of the difficulty of life and the reality of death and how frustration and pain continues for generation and generation. And there's this endless war between good and evil and all the frustrations of motherhood and parenting and marriage and, and life and trying to get good things from the soil. And all of it is just very much broken, but cyclically so. And it's not until... The serpent's head is crushed, that that whole cycle gets broken, right? Woman will no longer be subject to man's tyranny. The man will no longer be subject to death. The dirt will be freed from the serpent. All of it gets undone when the serpent's head is crushed. So those are kind of the two oracles against woman and against man, against Eve and against Adam. So there's two moments here in verses 20 and then verse 21 um, are two events that are, again, hopeful events. They're events that indicate survival. They're events that indicate hope. And the first one, these are both briefly mentioned last week. We won't spend too much time on them. But the first one is verse 20 where Adam renames or recalls his wife. Adam calls his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all living. Now this word Eve is related uh, phonetically to the word for life. And what Adam is doing is he's identifying the, is her essential relationship to the, con, uh, to the continuation of humanity. Right? Without her, there is no humanity. Any and all of the human race are from our first mother Eve. 
We've just heard, right, that man is going to certainly die. Adam's as good as dead. He's going to turn back into dirt, and woman will accompany him there. But there's this moment of hope. There's something that's exciting going on, and it's within the woman. That her seed, right, is going to war against and ultimately crush the serpent's head. Uh, That each of these moments are going to accumulate then in this new name, Eve. Within her lies the hope of humanity, both immediately and eventually. That there will be an actual son, and then that there will be that seed that will deliver them. Not that they probably knew the difference yet between the two, though in the next few years they were going to become keenly aware of the difference. So once again, the fact that Adam is doing the naming... Uh, does indicate his responsibility, his leadership. That's present once again. And once again, just like he did in chapter two, Adam chooses wisely. You know, Adam is, is her source of life, technically. He could be like, well, you did come from me, so even the life is still kind of from me. So I'm the father of living. <laughs> you know, no, he, he responds wisely and names uh, his wife in this way. He acknowledges her companionship in the first name. And now he acknowledges his indebtedness to her for life's future. The second significant event is verse 21, where God makes clothes for them. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and he clothed them. This foreshadows redemption. It is the first sacrifice, though it's not explicitly stated the animal sacrifices here, all of the mere images of uh, of the temple here, uh, of the tabernacle, of sa- the sacrificial system, the priestly relationship to Adam and Eve, all of it is quite clear. In fact, this is even a, like a, a demonstrating the proto-priestly role that Adam and Eve are taking here when they get the appropriate garments in order for their interaction with God, in, uh, 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 their appropriate garments in which they can move out into this broken world, the appropriate garments with which the next step of their relationship with God comes the appropriate garments for for the world of brokenness in which they're about to come certainly leaves would not have held up against the thorns and thistles i mean that that it's practical it's loving it's warm it's what god has done in order to cover their embarrassment to preserve them from the new hostile environment from which they're about to enter it also quite clearly foreshadows the necessary uh, need for a sacrifice right that the animals were going to be this covering image That's begun here. God bestows upon them garments of skin. Upon the guilty ones. Upon the sinful ones. This is the first time as well that we see God making something again. Right? From the sixth day, he finished his work. Seventh day, he rested. And now because of sin, he begins working again. Not perhaps bringing things out of nothing but using that which he has made to continue blessing his people. Then we have an interesting epilogue here in 22 through 24. Let's just read that one more time. Uh, It's this intra-divine conversation. So God speaking to himself. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, dot, 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 sort of drops off. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
So God makes first an observation, right? Behold, this is what has happened. God ha- or the, mankind has in one way become like us because they understand evil now, don't they? In a way that they did not before. Uh, it's also true that they, so, so they're aware of this good and evil because of their disobedience. And then he decides to do something about it. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, dot, 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 then the description. So it's, a, it's merciful. It's kind. Uh, it's God being willing to, to not lash out in anger. Uh, he, in the middle of their difficult sentence, then he still does something for the ultimate good of his creation. It's, it's the sympathetic, sympathetic compassion where God ensures in this act that Adam and Eve are not going to live forever in brokenness. That's what he's doing. The removal from the tree of life, their removal from the tree of life, guaranteed their death, which was a merciful thing if they were now born into the knowledge of good and evil. If they were now born into this sin-cursed world, had they been granted access, it seems quite clear that they would have continued. They would have been immortally fallen. So the two trees are still kind of present in the text, but no longer ideologically standing together because they chose the one, they lost the other one. And he sent out still to maintain his responsibility to till the ground from which he was taken. Again, that has not changed. But this, this uh, verse 24 is pretty strong language. When it says that he drove out the man, this is the language of banishment. This is the language of, of exile. It's quite strong indeed. The word intends to communicate this, that this isn't like, hey, could you run to the grocery store? Hey, could you go out and then come back later? He's saying you're going out and this is no longer your home. You cannot return. There is no way back. You won't be coming home to the garden. They're driven out into the cold or to the heat. And if that had been the initial response, then I think we'd sort of be considering, like the image again that Pastor Matt raised last week of just this like terror or frustration. If God had responded just with verse 24, you know, you have Adam and Eve and they ate and they hid and then he drove out the man. If that was it, then we kind of have this beauty and the beast image, don't we? Like the beast roaring at Belle after she goes into the West Wing. Like, I told you not to come here. You know, and he sends her out and she runs and she's terrified and she doesn't think she can come back. But there's been a lot that's happened between now and then, isn't there? The warmth, the familial words, this concern, these provisions. There have been many things that God has provided for them. And yet... Because the tree's in the garden, they cannot be there. They cannot have immortal, fallen life. So the passage then has come full circle, hasn't it? From the bliss and and the blessing of creation, now to the burden and the burn of sin. But mercy, mercy's here. So then finally, we'll just address this cherubim. A few notes of application will be done. Uh, when he placed the cherubim at the east of the garden, there's, there's the cherubim and then the flaming sword. Uh, so, the, and the, the, they're on the east. Okay, so the east side of the garden, that's something, we'll just table that for a little bit later because to the east is actually a, a 
pretty strong motif throughout the beginning of Genesis. Uh, so it's not just uh, Adam and Eve that are moving east, but uh, even next chapter, Cain is banished to the east, and then there's other things that continue happening that direction. So we'll, so we'll address that a little bit later. This cherubim, it's a, it's a winged being um, whose image later covers the Ark of the Covenant. It was decorated, his image was decorated uh, onto the, the curtains of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. They're associated with the very presence of God, which is appropriate for Eden, right? the very place that God lived, the very place where heaven met earth. And so the being carries or is accompanied by, maybe difficult to tell, this flaming sword which, which turns every which way or which rotates or perhaps which flashes back and forth. We don't really know if the cherubim's actually holding this sword that, you know, like goes every direction or uh, if this really is just an implication. The, it's, a, it's a picture here where he's trying to say like, hey, it's dangerous. There's, there's fire there. There's lightning there. Could even be this being with the sword just being the, the dangerous nature of God, sort of an idea where it's just flashing all around and you know the whole point of it. You can't go back. <laughs> the whole point is like, don't, don't try and get past them. You know, it's not like a security that can be breached. It's terrorizing. Terrifying. Maybe. You wouldn't want to go there. It's going to uh, encourage Adam and Eve and probably their children as well not to attempt re-entry of the garden. So what do we do with this text? I think there's a few things. There, there's obviously the, the paradigms that we learn about. And back to the beginning of chapter three, right? the paradigms of, of how sin works, uh, what disobedience looks like. I think we all can understand that, the, that we've all believed, you know, God's prohibition strict and his provisions meager. We, we see that. Um, I would also, from this, just this immediate text in, in uh, 15, 16 through 24, I can't help but encourage you toward Ecclesiastes. It interprets what's going on here. It makes sense of life in a broken world. This world just, it, this text shows us. It says the very things kind of we already knew, the very things we've been living in since we were born. We're like, oh, that's why. Oh, there it is. Oh, there's the oracle against man. Oh, there's the oracle against woman. Oh, there's why sin happens. There's why things are so frustrating and painful and difficult. And Ecclesiastes has so many things to say to address how we ought to live in this life under the sun. Right? We should seek to mitigate the curse. You can war against it. That's fine. That's good. Remove vexation. Remove pain from your body. Don't I mean, get the epidural if you want the epidural. Try to make it easier. Take the ibuprofen. Do, what, do whatever you can do. That's all good and well. Man, work hard. Try to make things easier. Try to become efficient. Try to undo the difficulty of the ground. That's all there. But just know you won't ultimately be successful. You can't remove the pain. You can't undo the curse. And that will lead you to the fact that who broke it? I mean, God broke it. We see him snapping his world here. So the only one that can put it back together is him. And that's what Ecclesiastes teaches us. So it takes us to the end, right? It takes us to anticipation. It takes us to hope where we wait. And it also, I mean, Ecclesiastes teaches us, embrace the reality of death, right? When it says you're going to return to dirt, it says, think about that. <laughs> you can't undo that either. Don't seek immortality. Don't seek to be remembered. But then that takes us to Christ too, doesn't it? Because he undoes death. 
he gives us eternal life, he takes us back to a better garden. So he does all of those things. And so it does lead us, this whole thing leads us through where we're at to where we're going. And those are both very helpful realities. So the pronouncement of death, the pronouncement of curse against serpent, oracles of pain against Eve and Adam, it's grim, but the provision of life is also quite joyous. In Adam, we inherited death, but in the second Adam, we inherit a generous inheritance of undying life.